Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time together this morning. And God, we do invite you to speak to us. Open up our eyes and our hearts. Help us to receive the living, active, and dynamic word of God. Your word that does not return void. Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit. And for those, Father, who have stepped away, God, I pray that you would draw them back to you today. Lord, may we take your word seriously. May we receive from your spirit this day. And may we expect you to speak and move in our life. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Amen. Magnum opus. Magnum opus is a term that's attributed to the greatest work of an artist, of a writer, uh, sometimes of a historian or even of a speaker, sometimes a scientist, their greatest work. And we call this sermon series, you've heard it called the Sermon on the Mount. Matter of fact, uh, the, the visuals that you have are where scholars believe that the actual mount uh, existed, uh, where they spoke from, where Jesus would have spoken from. And as we consider that, uh, it's not any stretch to say that the greatest sermon ever given was given on this mount, the king's speech, the sermon uh, that incorporates and help us to, uh, helps us to understand what does it mean to live out the kingdom life, the kingdom ethic. And as a part of today's message, we're also going to investigate the theology of Scripture. But as we think about that, I, I was reading an article this week Time Magazine, and it said that nearly 40% of children the age from 7 to 17 believe everything that they read online. It's kind of a scary thought. They believe everything that they read online. It comes up uh, on the computer, and that's the truth. It's kind of a scary thought when you consider how many things come out, even things that I received this week that I, that I personally knew were not right. But if we're not careful, we can think because it's in writing, it must be true. When in fact, there is only one document, there's only one thing that's written that you can guarantee that is always truth, and that's the Word of God. You see, there are three ways that people view the Bible today. Some may take a very liberal approach, and they'll say something like this. I believe that the Bible contains the Word of God, that there are things in there that are God-breathed and God-inspired. There are certain aspects of the Bible that are true, and it has truth in it. That's a very liberal way to look at Scripture. A second way would be kind of, it's known as the neo-Orthodox movement. And it's actually been around for a while, but it's kind of making a resurgence right now. And it goes like this. I believe that the Bible is true or it becomes true as I experience it. So it becomes the Word of God. It's kind of an existentialism. It becomes the Word of God and it becomes the truth as I experience it in certain situations and at certain times. It, it becomes truth depending on my situation, depending on what I'm reading, depending on how it impacts me. It becomes truth. But I believe the proper way to look, and as most uh, conservative evangelicals would see the Scripture, that the Bible is 
the Word of God. It doesn't simply contain it. It's not just true just because you experience. It is the Word of God. It is the truth. In spite of what you think or in spite of what your experiences are, in spite of what you don't like or doesn't seem right, we've talked about this before, one of the reasons we know uh, that it's God's Word is because this is not something you would make up. I mean, even the ethic that we're looking at as we looked at the Beatitudes, that's not something you'd make up. Sometimes people go, oh, I, I like the news. I like the words of Jesus. Those are the ones I like. Jesus said some pretty hard things. Like, you must be poor in spirit to see the kingdom of God. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. How many of you think, that's so sweet. <laughs> I love it when I'm persecuting, when I'm suffering. Oh, that nice Jesus. No, it means we just hadn't really read it. <laughs> hadn't really thought about it, okay? Because there are a lot of things in there that are hard, that are tough. But that doesn't negate. And that's one of the reasons we know it's the Word of God. Because if it was just us, we'd make up all kind of nice flowery stuff. And we would leave out the things that are hard and we can't explain. We'd just make it up in our mind and it'd all fit nicely. No one would argue. No one would ever get mad. No one would ever say, it doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. And that's one of the reasons we know it's the Word of God. Because His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Francis Schaeffer wrote a great book. He's a great philosopher and theologian. Passed away probably about 25 years ago. And he wrote a book called, He is There and He is Not Silent. And I think that's a beautiful title to describe the Bible. He is there and He's not silent. He has revealed his will and word to us through Scripture. Now, I want to give you a little background as we dive into chapter 5, verse 17 through 20 today. And I want us to talk just a little bit about the law so that we have an understanding going into our text. Um, there, matter of fact, in the, in the Bible, when you see the Pharisees in particular regard the law, sometimes they meant, uh, they always meant the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So you could always count on that. Uh, sometimes when they talked about the scriptures, they also included the, the, the oral tradition of the elders. And uh, that was sometimes ascribed to and, and put on par with scripture by many. Uh, still others uh, would include also the writings or the prophets. Now, the Sadducees would only go with the Torah. Uh, but the Pharisees and most others would include the writings. So when they talked about scripture, they would be inclusive that Jesus, when he is speaking... Uh, certainly is talking about the Old Testament. Matter of fact, let's, you know, sometimes people say, well, New Testament, I don't know about the Old Testament. Matter of fact, um, sometimes people will say, I'm under grace. I'm not under the Old Testament. I'm under grace. I'm not under any law. I'm under grace. Well, that's, that's very interesting. Um, first of all, what Bible did Jesus read? Don't say King James. Please don't say King James. Okay. That was been in 1611. People didn't wander around for 16. Where's the Bible? I wish the King James would written. All right, I know. That's, that's totally inappropriate. But seriously, great Bible. I grew up with it, okay? But Jesus read the Old Testament. There was no New Testament, okay? And he called it the Word of God. He called it the Scripture, okay? So the Old Testament is the Word of God. The New Testament is certainly the Word of God. But when we look at the law, there are two types of law. There's the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law was how you washed before you would eat, how you would present a sacrifice, how you would go to the temple, okay? There, and it was your diet, what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. All right, that was the ceremonial 
Uh, some you even break it down further and say there was the dietetic law. That was a ceremonial law. All right. And when we talk about the ceremonial law, <clears throat> it was meant for this purpose to make the people of Israel unique, to identify them as a separate, as a holy, unique type of group of people. Okay. So people knew when they were around the Jew because everything they did, it permeated every aspect of their life, how they interacted socially, what they wore, how they would dress, uh, what they would eat, uh, how they would go about the process before they would eat a meal. <clears throat> These things were all unique to them. And it was to be a picture of the holiness that this is a, a group of people have been set apart and they are to be a light to the rest of the world. So people can see that they're unique, that their holiness is different. The way that they approach God, not only in their worship, but in every other, every other aspect of their life, you can see aspects of the holiness of God. Now, these uh, this law that was given to them was for that purpose. That's, that's why they did it. But then there is the moral law, okay? The moral law is uh, certainly the Ten Commandments, or at least nine of the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath uh, is, we can, we can talk about that. But there's the moral law that was given by God. And the moral law is the nature and the essence of God. That's what the law is. The, the essence and the nature of God. And so when we read here in just a moment that Christ came to fulfill the law, he came to fulfill both. Now, he fulfilled the moral law, how? By living a perfect life, by not sinning, by never breaking the moral law. Now, we know that Jesus will consistently break the ceremonial law. He will consistently not wash. His disciples don't wash before they eat. We all think that was great hygiene, which it is but that's not what necessarily was going on at this time. And they see him working on the Sabbath and doing some things, and so they're greatly disturbed. Now, with that understanding, let's begin our text here in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with the 17th verse. And we see here that Jesus is speaking. He's giving his speech. He's giving this sermon. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's saying right here, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, let's suppose that your family wants to go to Disney World. And so you get a bunch of brochures with all the Disney stuff. You see the rides, you see the hotels, the Magic Kingdom and Epcot and MGM and whatever else they've added lately. And you've got those brochures and you're looking at them. You go, that's great. That tells me about That's really cool. But when you get in the park, are you still looking at brochures? When you're on the roller coaster, you're going, this is a nice brochure. I love the brochure. You're not reading the brochure anymore because you don't need it. It's just a shadow of what's coming. There's a term that sometimes we use here called foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing. That brochure is a foreshadowing of the event that you're looking forward to, that you're anticipating to experience. The ceremonial law was a shadow of what was to come. It was a shadow of the holiness of God that was coming to earth in the form of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So he foreshadowed. So no longer are the brochures necessary. He is here, and he's fulfilling. The moral law does not go away. He's fulfilling by living it out, and he's giving us here the kingdom ethic, the kingdom way to live. And he says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, 
until heaven and earth pass away. Not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, he uses an analogy here to help us understand. Sometimes maybe you've heard the phrase, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that one iota. Maybe your mother said that. I'm not sure if you're younger, you go, I never heard that in my life. Um, but that's a Greek term for the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, the iota. Matter of fact, that's the ninth letter of the Greek alphabet. Some of you who were Greek know that. Uh, I don't mean literally Greek, but college Greek. Um, and you see the, the jot right here. Now, if you see this next little letter, that's the iota. It kind of looks like a J, doesn't it? So it's regarded in the Greek, the smallest letter. It, as a matter of fact, it's the equivalent of our, we transliterate. It's not really an I, but we transliterate it as an I. Now, if you go down the Hebrew here, the tittle, in your translation, uh, we, we see right here, it says dot. Uh, it, but if you had King James, you grew up like me hearing jot and tittle. And the tittle right here is the, the yod, okay? And the yod is just a simple mark. And with that simple mark, you can make, sometimes, you can make a number, a letter, or you can completely change the sound of that letter with the yod, okay? Just like you see, like in our, in our alphabet, we've got an O and a Q. I just put that little mark. Matter of fact, in Greek, it's called a horn. Uh, I just put that little hook on there, that little horn on there, and it goes from an O to Q, and the sound is completely changed. And Jesus is using this analogy here. And Jesus says, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one iota or dot, not one dot or jot or tittle will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He said, look, uh, my kingdom, until my kingdom comes in its fullness, my word will stand strong. It will not change. It will not differentiate. You can count on my word. It is eternal. He continues here and he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will call the least of the kingdom. Your translation, if you have a King James, says whoever breaks. Uh, Other translation will use the word annul, uh, which is probably an excellent word. You could even use the word manipulate. Whoever manipulates, whoever annuls, uh, whoever bends, uh, and as our translation right here says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called the least of the kingdom. What's he talking about here? When we start to say, you know what, I'm, I'm under grace, so I can, I do this. I do this. Um, I'm going to use a, a heart, heart illustration. Sometimes, um, matter of fact, just last week, uh, I met with somebody who was going to leave their, their family and their spouse. And they said, um, you know, I just think God wants me to be happy. I, I think that's what he wants me to do. And I said, what do you think about you? They said, uh, what do you think about your kids? Think they're going to be happy? No, it'll be hard, but they, they, they want me to be happy too. Uh, do they say that? No, they're too young right now. And we're continuing this conversation. I said, you know what? Let's quit bringing God into this. Let's just quit blaming it on him right now. Let's just say you want to be. Let's quit saying what Jesus wants to be because that's not what Jesus, that's not the highest form right here in life. This is not what God's going for, okay? We're going to talk about that in a moment. That's, that's not your premium. That's not why you exist. Uh, that's a big bonus when, when we can have it. But he, um, he shared this. He said, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, and they feel the same way. And it's easy for us to start to teach another message. And Jesus said, that's the least in the kingdom. Matter of fact, he's got some harder things to say here in just a moment. Let's continue in our text. But when we start to pronounce that, 
and start to verbalize it and start to teach it and speak it. He says, but whoever, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom. In verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds the most religious group on the earth at that time, you'll not enter into the kingdom. That must have been mesmerizing. But they were experts in keeping the ceremonial law. But what did Jesus say? And every Jew knew this. What was the greatest law? What's the greatest commandment given? Found in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and strength. They were loving God with their minds. They were loving God with their acts, with their deeds, their ceremonial law, but their hearts were far from him. And we know this. Matter of fact, Jesus is going to address this six times, by the way. He's going to give six examples of where the heart is not a part of the worship. He's going to start. He's giving it to us right up here at front. And the second greatest commandment was what? Love your neighbor as yourself. They weren't doing that. They were checking the box, so to speak. You know how that works, huh? I mean, my children aren't like this, but yours probably are. My children are perfect, but uh, they've asked me to say that. But um, perhaps you've met some other couple with a child who is compliant but not committed. What do I mean by that? Compliant is this. I want you to go in there and pick everything up off your floor in your room right now. So your child goes and they pick up everything and they throw it under the bed. They comply. Now, if they were doing out of commitment, they would go and actually clean it and actually put it where it belongs, okay? And sometimes we're just, great, we're just grateful when our children are compliant sometimes, aren't we? I mean, we think, that, <laughs> I don't want to complain today. But our goal is for our children to mature and that they do it out of a respect and a relationship, and, and they're maturing, and they, they want to do what's right. That's where we want to get our children. We want them to grow up and mature so they can have that experience and so that they can one day move out of our house. Okay, that's what we, we ultimately want to happen so they can take care of themselves. But uh, that's kind of a picture of what the Pharisees, they were checking the boxes. All the boxes were checked. They were compliant, but their heart, the Bible tells us, was far from him. We get a great example of this in the Scripture, don't we? In the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? Sometimes we understand it incorrectly. When I was a kid, sometimes I grew up here. Well, you know, Cain and Abel. Cain brought some vegetables and grain. Cain, he brought, but uh, Abel, he brought a sacrificial animal. And that's why God was happy and not happy with vegetables. It makes it sound like God doesn't like vegetables, you know. And uh, so that was the problem. But that really wasn't the, the issue there. The issue was, we see it was a matter of the heart, and we learned this in Hebrews. It, there was a matter of the heart, and we can't say exactly, but we know it was the spirit of the heart, where Cain, who's a farmer, and he should be bringing grain and produce, and he brings it before God, but it, it, it appears the way it's written that he brought it unthoughtfully. So in other words, he just kind of picks something as he's walking out, and he puts it up there, and he checks the box. And the Bible says that God rejected Cain's offering. But Abel's, he accepted. Abel goes out and he looks for the best lamb. He looks for the best animal and he brings it in. And it's a sacrifice. And the way that he presents it in commitment as an act of worship. There's the picture. Are we simply compliant, checking a box? Are we doing out of a commitment to Christ and our love for him? 
great question to ask ourselves this morning. And I believe this text gives us one of the most important doctrines that we should understand. That's called bibliology, the study of the Bible. And why should we trust the Bible and why should we believe the Bible is true? As we talk about it, there's the truth of it is the Bible is the revelation that God has given to it. If we start right there, the revelation. And how has God revealed himself? Well, the Bible says there's two ways uh, called general revelation. We use this term. The first one uh, would be called nature. Does not nature itself, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, does not nature itself reveal that there is a God? That there must be a cause, as we hear it in our society, in our vernacular today, that there is a cause that there is a God, that there is something greater than ourselves. Does not nature itself reveal that as we look at the heavens, the stars, the ocean, the moon? If we wanted to go into it, we talked about it several weeks ago, just the fine-tuning of the universe that we could even exist here. It screams that there is a creator. The Bible says that, and we know that if we're, we're honest. Number two, conscience. C.S. Lewis's book, great work called Mere Christianity, is written that the conscience... And within our mind, we know there is something more. There is something out there. There is something more than what we're existing here, that we were created for something else, and that there are desires and longings that we have that cannot be met upon this earth. And so we are striving, and we are seeking, and we are hungering for something else in our very conscience, that moral, that we know that there is a right and wrong that couldn't have come just from simple chemicals and DNA would produce what is right in that hunger for another world, for another life. So general revelation. Then there's special revelation. What is special revelation? Well, first of all, the nation of Israel was meant to be special revelation. We talked about how God called them to be a unique and separate people, to be a light to the other nations. Number two, Christ, when he came to this earth, he was a revelation, a special revelation of God to mankind. The church is to be an act of revelation to the world and a a light to the world. And, of course, the Bible is God's revelation in word here that has been given to us. Not just revelation, but we also uh, are to experience uh, the Holy Spirit in the word of God the history, the manifestations of the Word, the history and the incarnation as Jesus came to earth. What we believe about the Bible is this, is that it is inspired. The Bible tells us in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We believe that the whole Bible is inspired. Verbal plenary is the term that's used. It means all parts of the Bible are equally inspired, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just because we don't get it, just because we don't understand it, doesn't mean it's not inspired, doesn't mean it's not the Word of God. The Bible is infallible, completely trustworthy in moral and spiritual truth. It is inerrant, completely true and factual in its writings and history. A great book that you might want to pick up about this subject if you struggle at all or want to know more about the writings of the New Testament and why we believe so strongly uh, that they're true. It's a book called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? by F.F. Bruce. He's one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. He died uh, probably about 25, 30 years ago, but great, great theologian, great piece. Highly recommend it. The Bible also illuminates the ministry of the Holy Spirit that enables man to see the truth of the gospel. 
you know, again, I want to go back to that word foreshadowing because today it's real popular to think that the Bible is about us. And what do you mean by that? Well, we think a lot of us, it's, it's about making me feel good. It's about making me happy. It's about getting what I want. And people, some people teach that. But what we have to remember is that every book of the Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament, it's a foreshadowing. It's a brochure of the perfect that is to come. It's indicating, it's pointing to the one who will come. Matter of fact, we've got a little Bible at our house called the Jesus Bible. And every, every, book, every, every book is pointing toward Jesus. Every story is pointing toward Jesus. And that makes a lot more sense when we start to see a lot of these Old Testament concepts. When we look at the bread and we look at the wine. When we look at the temple. When we look at the tabernacle. When we look at the priest and the prophet and the kings. When we look at uh, Abraham. He's pointing toward Jesus. Ultimately, he is a poor copy of the original that is to come. When we look at Isaac, when we look at Joseph, when we look at Moses, the deliverer, he is pointing toward the deliverer who will come, toward Elijah, toward David. They're all pointing toward Christ. And that's why the Jews would say, one day when the Messiah comes, when the Messiah comes, they were anticipating. And when we read Scripture, we need to read Scripture with the understanding that it's all pointing toward Christ and toward us knowing God in His glory, in His fullness. And so it's imperative that we interpret correctly. We interpret the Word of God correctly. You know, it, it's real hard when we only see it as entertainment or fun. Now, I know some children who they go to school, and they don't like school except for recess and lunch. You probably don't know any children like that, but I can introduce you to them. Um, recess and lunch. They're not really into this whole academic thing. But what kind of parent would you be if you go, well, honey, you're right. That should just be fun. That's why I'm sending you to school anyway. If you're not having fun, let's just quit. They are not meeting their objective. Those teachers, they should make it more fun. And you should just really enjoy and have a great time. And you should have a longer recess and more lunch. Because after all, that's what I want for you, honey. I just want you to be happy and entertained. I want everything to be fun. You would look at that and you go, what a doofus for a parent. <laughs> if you're like me, you're going, you know, I don't really care if you're having fun or not. <laughs> that's not the purpose in school. You're there to learn. You're there to get an education. Hey, that's a bonus if you have a good time. That's a bonus for it. You ought to be lucky you get lunch, son. You ought to be lucky, honey, that you get recess, all right? That's that just a bonus. That's not why you're there. I, I'm looking for them to transform your mind so that you can learn and get a job and get out of this house. That's what I really want. That's, that's what it's all about right here, okay? So forget the fun. Forget the entertainment. But you know what's funny is as adults, sometimes we approach life the same way. God, I just want to be fun. I want to be entertained. I went to that church, and it was no fun. I was not entertained. And I read the Bible, but it's not any fun. And when I've read it, I'm just not entertained by it. No, not really. And some of those stories, some of those things that y'all say, I don't like it. It's not very fun. You sound like the six-year-old. That's what we do. We sound like we're approaching it like it's an entertainment document. Like the purpose of this world, the reason we were created was to be entertained. But you know why you were created? To bring him glory. That's why you were created. To bring him glory. 
and to know him personally. And that's what this book is for, is that you might know the heart of God and that it may transform your mind, your will, and spirit into the image of Christ so that he might be glorified so others may see the good work and glorify the Father in heaven. That's why you were created. And as long as we have this, well, we come to worship, it's not really about you. God. It's about you. It's not about God. It's about you. You're going to be unhappy a lot because at school, recess is going to stop. Sometimes they're not even going to serve lunch. All right? Sometimes you're going to have a substitute teacher that does not like you. That's real life. And if you think it's only about entertainment, You'll be going, oh, God, you don't work. Why don't you work with me? He said, I'm trying to work with you. I'm trying to change your whole minds. I'm trying to transform your attitude and your heart from an entertainment mindset to a glorification transformation mindset. So how are we to read the Bible? Recognizing this. this these are basic principles of hermeneutics. What are hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is simply this. It's understanding the context of the Bible and how people would have understood it in that background and how we are to understand it today and apply it. Okay, that's a real simple definition. So how do we start with the Bible? I want to give you some very, very simple principles. If you want to go deeper, uh, you can get online. You can go to Bible Gateway. You can go to n- numerous places that will help you. But uh, we start by praying and recognizing that our heart really wants us to be entertained. That's where we start. But the truth of it is, Uh, we pray and say, God, give me your heart. Let me see as you see. Let me understand as you desire for me to understand. Recognize that every book ultimately points to Jesus. Allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. In other words, don't just pull out a phrase. Sometimes we're bad about this. We pull out a phrase. All things work together for good for them to love the Lord. Isn't that great? And that's not even the whole verse. Okay, And are called according to purpose, but even bigger, that's not the whole chapter. If you go back and read Romans chapter 8, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying, your life's going to be fun. <laughs> it's going to be good. You're going to like it. You're gonna, it's going to be Disney World every day. It's not what he's saying at all. Go back and read the context of Romans chapter 8. Of anything, that, any passage that we're reading, read the full context and understand. Take notice of the genre. Is this in poetry? Is this prophetic? Is it allegorical? Understand the context in which it's written. Um, understand and consider the historical, historical and cultural background that was going on right then. Learn in community in Bible studies. One of the reasons we offer Bible studies here at church on Sunday mornings and on Wednesdays and all during the week Bible studies because it's important for us to not just pigeonhole. It's, I think it's very important for you to have personal quiet time and study, but also to come into community and to learn and to ask questions. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand and then meditate on the passage. As we look at a passage like this, uh, marinate. Don't just fly through it where you don't hear it and you don't see it and you don't really respond to it. You don't really listen to it. You don't really remember it or grasp it. Um, I want want to close with this passage. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 1. I think this helps us understand what Jesus is trying to communicate. James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25 But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what it's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, 
he will be blessed in doing. Verse 23 again, for anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like or what he looks like. You know, it's interesting, the Greek word used right here, it's usually, typically when you look at the scripture, they'll use the word for mankind in the Greek, but this word right here is not the generic, it's specifically talking about a man, a guy, a dude. And the picture is here, don't be, what he's saying, James, is don't be like a man who looks in the mirror. Now, you're probably going to be surprised by this, but I actually take very little time in front of the mirror before I came here this morning, or any other time for the matter. You know, I, I, I mean, literally, this is what I do. I, I, after I've brushed my teeth, I, I look at my hair, and I take a little gel, and I do this, and I'm gone. <laughs> and I, I know you're thinking, how does he, God, he must spend a lot of time. I don't. I spend virtually no time whatsoever. It's about five seconds. I glance, and I'm gone. I take a glance. Okay, I'm fine. My goal is not, my goal is not to be beautiful. It's to be presentable, all right? I'm way past beautiful at this point in my life. I just want to be presentable. I just don't want you to go, oh, gosh. You know what I mean? I, I, I just don't want you to be horrified. I just want to be presentable when, when I get up. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she's a beautiful woman, sweet one. It's her birthday today. Happy birthday. Ah, uh, there you go. That's right. And I want you to know this is all very positive, okay, regardless of how you might interpret it incorrectly. My wife takes a lot more time in front of the mirror than I do. She is not just interested in being presentable. She's going for a whole nother look, okay? So when she comes in, she looks, she will wash her hair, and then she'll take about 20 minutes, and she'll blow dry her hair. She'll brush it. She'll do all these things. And then she'll, she'll look in the mirror. She'll look at different angles. And then we have a vanity. She'll look in that. And then she sits down, and she has this mirror. It's like a flipping telescope. It's like the size of a dish. And it like, you look at it, and it's like, wow, right? I mean, it's scary. I looked at it one time, and I saw things on me. I, I don't ever want to look at that thing again. Why would you look at that? It's a big magnifying glass. It would kill an ant if it got in there. I mean, it's, and it's got a light on it, and it just shows everything, man. And you can flip it and look at different angles. I don't know how much that thing costs. But she, she looks in that mirror and studies, and she gets ready, and she, she curls her hair, puts a curling iron on, and does that kind of stuff. And then she's putting her makeup on, and she's looking at different angles. And then she um, gets out some curling eyebrows and things and all this, all these instruments out there and these little tweezers and I don't even know what they're for. And they're all over and she's using them and she's putting this stuff on her face and there's quite a bit of time going on here. And then she gets up and she looks in the other mirror then she puts some clothes. I don't know if that looks right. And she puts some other ones on and she's going for transformation and she spends a lot of time in front of the real mirror and the telescope and she's looking. Why? Because she's looking to transform her look. She's not, uh, she's not, it's not acceptable to just be presentable. She's not going for, oh, presentable. She wants to go for beautiful, okay? And she does, and she, she, she's successful at it, all right? So she goes for transformation. I go from just get out of here, all right? I'm just taking a glance. She's staring deeply. She's looking at it intensely. She's studying, and she is looking for the, the physical transformation look, Okay? So here's the question. Are you like a dude when it comes to the Word of God and to the kingdom of God? The Bible says quit being a dude. Don't just look at me. I did my glance. I read my scripture. And you go on and you forget. You don't even know what you read. I checked the box. 
and you're out of here. Check the box church. What do they pray? I don't know. Somebody told, told some story about his wife. You know what I mean? And, and that's kind of what you got. Maybe it's time to take some notes. Maybe it's time to stop and say, God, is that me? And ask some hard questions. Don't be like a dude in front of the mirror. Now, I know some of you guys spend a lot more time than that. <laughs> I can't really tell, but I'm sure uh, some of you do. But when we read the Scripture, it's for the purpose of knowing Him and Him transforming our heart. Not for what we, we're going to get. It's what He's going to do to us and that we're going to know Him. Don't be like a guy in the mirror, but rather take the time to intensely study and listen and what you are looking for is transformation, to be conformed and to transform into the image of Jesus Christ. What kingdom are you living in this morning? Are you glancing at the kingdom of God? Or have you made a full-on commitment that you want to experience the transformation of the Holy Spirit in your life?